Hello and welcome to NDA. I'm Dave Wiskus. This is the show where we talk to people in the creator economy about creator economy things, whatever that means. Today, I'm joined by an extremely special guest, Mr. Todd Beaupre of YouTube. This is the guy who, when you think of the YouTube algorithm, the big, evil, monolithic, uh, career-ruining algorithm, that's his fault. What's your What's your title? Senior Director of Product Management, Growth and Discovery. That's a lot of words. Yeah. So when my channel isn't getting the views, I very clearly deserve, and, and YouTube owes yes. me, that's When the traffic goes up, that is due to the creator. Right. When the traffic goes down, that is due to the algorithm. Correct, correct. Yeah. It's interesting because you've started talking a little bit more publicly than in past. Uh, the the system in general, YouTube is a lot less opaque. Part of that because there were a lot of other people who didn't work on the algorithm talking about the algorithm. And they were often just kind of making up stuff that they thought was true. People and outside of YouTube. Outside of YouTube, yeah. So gurus and the like and you know, I think they were all trying to help people, but um, they had limited information about it. And I think we're also kind of framing it in ways that weren't as helpful to creators as, mm -hmm. as I thought. So um, I thought it would be good for us to get out there and help people understand how to work with YouTube and be successful. Yeah, there's so much of this business, the, the business of being a, a creator as, as, as a job, it truly is a business now. So much of it for the first decade or so was built on tribal knowledge. It was built on a sort of shared mythology, a lot of urban legend about how this worked. And if you did this, it would make, cause your views to go up. If you did this, your views would go down. In retrospect, almost every one of those things that I'm aware of, complete horseshit. The way the system actually works it's not as confusing, or at least as I understand it, not as confusing or as monolithic or, or as uh, horrifying as I was led to believe. I think it's kind of human nature for people to kind of want a simple explanation. They want to feel like they have some control and they want to know, well, what do I need to do to be successful? And I think that there's a lot of people who want that to be kind of a formula that they can just follow and what they don't like is when there's a lot of unknowns and a lot of things that are unpredictable. But I think what you'll find about media and entertainment, if you look back, you know, the things that you have to do to be successful in Hollywood are a bit different from what they are on YouTube, but there's still, there's always been a lot of unpredictability about how to make successful content. There used to be more gatekeepers mm -hmm. who you had to, uh, do the dance for them um, and we've tried to remove that and make it more about a direct connection between the audience and the creator. I've gone on record saying this before. I think that the creator economy as it exists today is not possible without YouTube. And there's going to be probably a lot of comparisons to the music industry in this conversation. I think it's mm -hmm. the most apt comparison because when you look at being an independent artist as a musician 50 years ago, like the way you would have to do anything, you'd, there, you'd have to go uh, cut a record, like literally a record, mm -hmm. um, get it played on radio stations. In order to do that, you had to work with a record label and then 
deep into the 80s and 90s, it had become so entrenched that the only chance you ever had of getting a record played on the radio was if you went through a record label and they owned everything. They were the gatekeepers. It didn't matter how good your band was if you pissed off the A&R guy. Yeah. If the labels didn't like you, you were just out. Yeah. Similar story in Hollywood. YouTube comes along and now a college kid can wake up in the morning with an idea, capture that idea into a video, put it up on YouTube and have a million views a day later. Yeah. That is possible. The distribution mechanism, the gatekeeper, um, you could say is the algorithm. The distribution is free. You have the potential to reach that audience for free. Uh, there's a thing that that a creator, an artist can do now that they were never able to do before. It is the algorithm that, that powers that. So all of the urban legend conspiracy theory stuff, um, in the end, like the system doesn't owe you views. Well, it's kind of interesting to think about even the concept of gatekeeping. Like, what what's the gate? Like, what is, what are you trying to keep? I mean, when I think about the algorithm, I don't think about it as a gate that's like preventing things from happening. I think of it as the opposite way: is how do we connect content with people? And I want to make as many of those connections as possible. I don't want to like suppress. Mm -hmm. uh, those connections. I want to find them. I want to find the ones that are working. And so I view the algorithm as more of a matchmaking service than a, you know, it's just really interesting to think about the concept of gatekeeping in media. Why, why did that ever come about? Who's, who's on the outside of the gates? Who's on the inside of the gates? Right. And what we have now, uh, it, gatekeepers wouldn't even make sense. Who needs gatekeepers in a world without they fences? Get in the way. When you imagine how the algorithm works, you you see it as like a what Tinder, automated Tinder matching viewers with videos. Some people like to use that analogy sometimes, and it's it's come up sometimes in terms of like how do we understand viewers? Should we give them like a Tinder like interface where they can swipe back and forth? I actually think for me it it's all centered around the viewers. So the algorithm starts when a viewer opens the app and the job of the algorithm is to then deliver the best videos to that viewer. And so it's really a ranking problem. And so we start with a viewer and then we're like, how do we think about how to find the best content for that viewer? I'm curious how you, how you think about it. Like if, if your job was the algorithm, the sort of inciting incident of this conversation is, you know, here, uh, here at Nebula, we are building a recommendation system. Yeah, and we we are uh, we we are but but babes in the woods on this one. We are trying to figure out what the audience would like. We are trying to figure out how to how to how to get them more things that they like. And we're brand new at this. Like our whole thing is, we're going to document what we learn. We're going to make this an open process. Hearing the way you guys approach this is not one-to-one, -one, but like a lot of what I want to understand here is you know, what are the ways to solve these problems with a very large data set for a very mm -hmm. large number of users? And what are the ways to solve these problems for a smaller group of people? But I think before we get into that, we don't normally do this. We don't, this isn't, this isn't an interview show. I'm, I'm not here to like dig into your past or anything, but in your case, because you've traditionally been uh, very behind the scenes, and lately it's been more out in front, but you're always talking about the work part of it. How do you become the algorithm? 
Like, what is the journey from wherever you started? How do you end up in this role? Yeah, well, when I started, you know, this career idea wasn't a thing, right? So it wasn't like I could take a quiz in high school and say, oh, you would be good at being the YouTube recommendation product lead. You didn't take algorithming 101 and no. college major in user video matchmaking? No, no, I don't have a degree in that. I don't think anyone offers such a thing. For me, I've always, you know, growing up, been fascinated with like people's preferences for things. Like why do different people like different things? And, you know, fourth grade, I ran around the playground taking poles. And really? Yeah, yeah, I thought that was fun. I, I was taking <laughs> presidential election polls, which, you know. But then in, in high school, the thing that I became fascinated by as a hobby was music ranking, specifically charts, music charts. And I would listen to the radio and Casey Kasem, Casey and, Kasem. Rick Dees and Rick Dees and they would count down the 40 best songs of the week. And I was kind of fascinated, like, ooh, why, why is this one number one? Can I predict what's gonna be number one next week? Just found it like an interesting way of like quantifying culture. Um, and I don't know, I think there's something about people coming together and, and the interesting thing about, well, what, what does everyone like the most? I studied statistics and economics in college and thought I would end up working for some government agency or Gallup doing polls or something like that. The internet happened when I was uh, in school. It was just an amazing thing. And so I took some of my passion for music charts onto the internet before any of Billboard or Rolling Stone had music charts on the internet. And I was like, oh, this is a cool thing. How about I make a chart of the best songs on the internet based on all the sources I can find. And so I, I did a music website called Hits World. I had a little link on my website saying, you know, hire me for a job in like radio research or something. And I had uh, some cool companies reach out to me and uh, it was back in the time where the internet was just kind of a small town. And uh, one of those companies was Rolling Stone Magazine who had a famous charts page in the back of the magazine, which, uh, but they didn't have a web presence yet. So they were looking for somebody to do that. But another company, which I had come across, was a company that was one of the first in the mid 90s, back in the 1900s, if, you, if you're familiar with that century. Yeah. There was a company that was, it was at the time called Agents Inc. And they were spun out of the MIT Media Lab um, with this one of these concepts of helping people uh, connect with the things that they love. And what specifically they had built was a recommendation system. It was before streaming media. So you couldn't like actually listen to music or watch movies or videos or anything like that. So they just had lists. So you could go on there and you could get a list of movies or a list of artists and rate them how much you like them. And then it would give you back, here's a list of other movies or artists or albums you should check out. And then they would also enable enable you to navigate by similarity. People who like this also like that. But it's all self-reported. You have to say, yes. I like this. It was all based on, you know, what we call explicit uh, feedback. Like I imagine the earliest days of Netflix. Yeah. Back when they were yeah. literally mailing you DVDs, you would have to say, I really like this one. It would yep. make suggestions. Yes. I wonder how useful that data ends up being today. I kind of view it, it's useful for when we get it wrong when the behavior gets it wrong, because when the behavior doesn't necessarily match 
the desire. Like if you watch something and then you regret it or. Yeah, that third mask we wear for ourselves. The, oh, yes. The uh, when when asked what our favorite food is, we might say broccoli, but then eat cookies. Yeah. So I came across Agents Inc. and uh, they thought my music website was cool. And long story short, I ended up working for them while I was still in school. And then I went to work for them after school. And uh, that was my first foray into recommendations was pretty much around the birth of it on the Internet. Wow. I just was fascinating. So I, I was like a web developer at the company because I, I didn't have any real training in the computer science behind the, the algorithms. But I would sit in on the, the meetings that they had when they would talk about like, you know, the formulas that they would use to try to compute similar artists or things like that. And uh, I thought that was so, so cool to just uh, be able to use this preference data to, to deliver this back to people that they could find things that they didn't know about um, based on other people. And one thing that they talked about there, which I think still resonates with me as a way to think about recommendations is they called it automated word of mouth. What that means to me is like oftentimes with recommendations, you talk with your friends and you're like, hey, see any good movies lately? Oh, what'd you see? And, you know, okay. And then, you know, your friends, some of your friends you have good overlapping tastes with and other other friends, it's like they just watch different things than what you do. Well, they watch garbage. They sit around watching reality TV. Yeah. And they love the Garfield movie. So when they say that something's great, you know that they're probably wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so you do this kind of probably subconscious math in your head when you're like talking to friends and figuring out what to watch. Well, the recommendation systems are are automating that process with everybody on the internet and matching you up with people who are even better matches than, uh, you know, maybe in terms of your media tastes. Who are the people that are just really into the things that you're into? Without invading anyone's privacy, you can basically get a ranked list of things that people like you are watching. Hypothetically, mm -hmm. this will never happen. But let's say you were to spot two users whose watch history is just incredibly similar and say, hey, you guys should be friends. You live in the same town. You watch all the same stuff. You guys should grab a drink. Do you think that that would actually result in a friendship? Well, I've definitely made friends that way, actually. Really? Um, By digging through their YouTube data? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, uh, on another service that I, uh, that I worked on after Agents Inc. and Firefly, I would run across various people um, just using the, the regular product. And uh, the best man in my wedding I met by uh, running around and chatting with people who liked obscure artists that I liked. My tennis partner, he and I lived in different cities, um, but noticed we had like really strongly overlapping music tastes. And we got to chatting online about that. And, and now he's one of my best friends. And so for you, it's like the we're roughly the same age, yeah. give or take a, a couple of years. You and I both grew up in this age where meeting a person on the internet was weird. Mm -hmm. Like going online and chatting with a stranger was something you were warned about. Adults were like, don't do that. They're going to kidnap you and do terrible things to you. Like I was definitely an indoor kid. Yeah. Uh, I was definitely an online kid. I made most of my friends on the internet to talk to a stranger about anything on the internet was the most normal thing in the world to do. Now, I think we're back to a place where it's a little bit weird again. Like you can make friends in online communities, but it's hyper specific. You you don't sort of like randomly encounter new friends the way you might have before. 
I don't know, I don't have a strong thesis on this, but the the idea of of intentionally going and finding friends because they watch the same videos as you. Yeah. You uh, I think now the the move is to go fandom. Yeah. Like you could go to a forum or a discord or something for a particular creator yeah and you might find friends there but like you wouldn't necessarily do that based on series of overlaps like genre overlap as much at least yeah could be wrong about that so when you think about the relationships between the people involved in the puzzle you're thinking about it from a perspective of like you come from a place where that is about human connection yeah but now the focus is more on connecting people to the things that they'd like how how human is that process for you? There's companies that are a lot more social in nature than YouTube first. Like they f- they focus on the social graph. Right, right. And as, um, as Zuckerberg called it. Yeah. And so their relationship first and then content is kind of separate. Um, whereas YouTube, I think, was content first and uh, doesn't focus so much on the real world relationships. It's more about the content. Mm. And helping you find what's going to bring you joy than it is on directly connecting you with a person. Going back, uh, you you made friends on the internet, ranking things. Yeah. So, so where does where does that take you? We still got how much road is left before you're the algorithm? Yeah. So I was working in algorithms. That company got bought by Microsoft. I got kind of derailed and worked on different stuff at Microsoft that wasn't as interesting to me, but. At the time, it was right when MP3s were coming out. Mm. And um, while I had been at Agents Inc. slash Firefly. Was this still the, the 1900s? It's still in the 1900s. And MP3s like what, 97, 98? 98. 98. And uh, we had had this vision for like, well, wouldn't it be great if you could actually listen to the music that you were rating? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but the technology and the broadband wasn't there. Right. I remember downloading MP3s on like a uh, 56K modem, like yeah. sitting there forever. Oh, I yeah. spent like a day and a half downloading a Sugar Ray song in 1998. Oh, yes. My buddy Jeff and I, who I'd worked with before, um, he and I were like, hey, let's build a little uh, personalized radio thing. Because we wanted, well, when we were at Firefly, we shared an office. And that was at the time of the... 200 disc CD changers. Oh, yeah. Remember and those, those things were like the most baller of baller CD changers. Yeah. So he and I, we shared an office. We went in halvesies on one of those because we didn't like listen to the radio because it's the same songs over and over. We almost bought some hardware that would enable us to like hook up that CD changer to a computer where we were going to try to control the shuffler on it. So it wasn't random, but it would actually play the songs we liked more and the songs we didn't like less but it was like hundreds of dollars to buy this hardware and we just didn't get to it but then when mp3s came around it was like well you put the instead of putting the uh shuffler you know connecting the music to the computer you put the music on the computer and then you can uh shuffle it using the computer and so we built a little a little product that was kind of like a little spotify um a little bit of pandora and uh we had it for ourselves just for listening to music in the office. And we tried to get Microsoft to start it as like a real product that we could offer. And um, it wasn't it wasn't a good time for them. But um, we ended up leaving Microsoft and joining a, a company that that was building out, you know, online radio stuff. And uh, 
So we built a, a product there called LaunchCast that was probably the first major personalized radio service mm -hmm. that we launched at the end of the 1900s. Uh, it came out six years before Pandora and probably close to 10 years before Spotify. Wow. Yeah, we started it as a better way to listen to music. And the idea was you could stream stream your own radio station that would play music you liked. You could rate the music as you listened. And then uh, it would also recommend music that you might like based on what other people were, were enjoying. And so that was kind of like my second recommendation system that I worked on. I didn't really know what I was doing there. I was just making it up as I went along. But it's interesting to see because um, since then I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of like PhD machine learning people who like really know how to do algorithms well. Mm. But like, turns out that the intuition that that I had for how to how to make a recommendation system turned out to be, you know, right. Like the the ways that we like gather candidates and then score them is the way that YouTube works today. Is we did the same thing in LaunchCast. Candidates meaning the songs. Yeah. Not yeah. the not the humans. You're not ranking. No, humans. no, it wasn't ranking people, ranking ranking content. At least not yet. Yes. I wish uh I wish that stuff had been around when MP3s first came out. I might have downloaded something a little less embarrassing than a sugar ray song. Yeah. Yeah. So I I worked on uh personalized radio for half a dozen years and then uh the music industry wasn't good for online radio. Uh, the royalties were like super expensive. The music industry and, just wasn't good. They had yeah. no idea what to do with the internet. Yeah. And we couldn't figure out how to make money off of it. We tried advertising. We tried premium services. I think it was just too early. And so Yahoo, Yahoo bought the company that, that I uh, had joined to build out LaunchCast and uh, ran it for a few years, but then decided it wasn't a good business to be in. So then I moved up to work on the Yahoo homepage and was part of the first team to bring machine learning to the content on the Yahoo homepage. If you read up, um, you can find articles about how uh, at Yahoo, we kind of went overboard a bit with clickbait, uh, not intentionally, of course, but uh, there was one reporter who was uh, wrote an article about how Yahoo took her down a path about child murder. I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier with like kind of when user behavior doesn't necessarily reflect user what users really want this reporter had been clicking on a bunch of stories about like some gruesome events out of curiosity um and then the the system learned that 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 person liked reading stories about gruesome events and then gave them more of that and so uh you know we learned the lesson their recommendations need to reflect not just what they do but what they actually want and so that that today lives in uh, YouTube through like satisfaction. So we do surveys of people where we ask them about videos they watch, about things we recommend, and they're able to tell us how they feel about things, not just tell us through their behavior that that was worth clicking on. Is it not good enough that somebody clicked a thing and then watched all of it? No, because what do you do about the videos where, you know, the video is just dragging out um the story or how to do something and you know a two minute video ends up being 15 minutes long and at the end they don't actually explain it well to you mm. so you watched the whole thing but you didn't get anything out of it yeah 
Or maybe you watched the whole thing and it maybe was entertainment and you felt like you wasted your time and you kind of regret watching it. Maybe, you know, I thought I wanted to watch it, but. Is that not what these guys are for? Thumbs up, thumbs, thumbs up, down? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Uh, some people use them for that. And we we use that data as input as well. But we've also found it useful to, um, you know, not everybody uses that, but uh, some people will respond to our surveys when we randomly kind of present that to them while they're scrolling through their feed. We're able to get feedback from a much broader um, set of people than the ones who are clicking like and dislike um, as they watch videos. Probably more refined feedback, people being a bit more thoughtful. Than... Yeah. Do you track, we're getting into details here, but do you, do you track when in the video somebody hits like or dislike? We do have that data available and we, we went through and uh, we built um, an analytics feature where creators could see for their own videos where people liked, disliked, subscribed. And what we found is that the data wasn't as interesting as we hoped it would be. A lot of people will either like at the beginning or at the end. Nowhere in between. And or like if they if there's a spike in subscribed, it's when the creator said, "Don't for, don't forget to subscribe," which you would expect to happen. We ran a beta, beta test with a bunch of creators. They looked at the data, and then uh, when we asked them about it, they said, "Yeah, it wasn't as useful as I hoped." So we we decided not to not to roll it out more broadly. And so yeah, we that's that's some signal that we explored. And you were at Microsoft. You were at Yahoo. You're at Google now. When are you going to go work for Apple? Yeah, I I tend to stick with a company for a long time when I find a good a good thing. I was at Yahoo over 11 years. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm coming up on 10 years at YouTube. YouTube is a really good match for me based on the values of the company. I feel like the principles that we have and the way we approach the ethics of recommendations and... Um, you know, the ethics of principles of freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of opportunity, freedom to belong, and the balance that the company takes and in trying to, you know, enable those freedoms, but do it in a responsible way. I feel like compared to the other companies I've seen out there, I, I've, I've been very pleased by the thoughtfulness and the, um, just sort of where where the the company's moral compass has been, um, I think it really aims to be on the right side of history, and uh, that makes me feel great about coming into work every day. That is no more evident than when you see companies doing it the other way. Mm -hmm. Like right now, you've got I mean, Facebook's always going to Facebook, and that's just kind of their thing. And so it's almost hard to use them as an example because they try so hard to walk the line straight down the center in i would say a destructive way but like they're not overtly trying to be destructive then you get twitter then you get elon and now we live in a world where you can contrast and compare uh shit post edgelord doing whatever the fuck he wants with youtube trying really hard just to show people videos they like yeah and all of the things you could complain about all of the things you could say are toxic all of the ways in which you could say uh any given system within YouTube's ranking or whatever might not be perfect. You can understand it better now through the lens of 
These are human beings trying to make something better. Whereas over here with, with uh, Elon stuff, you have someone who is either willfully making it worse or too entrenched in the sort of sycophantic feedback of people who want to make it worse to notice that it's making it worse. Mm -hmm. I think that there's nothing has ever made YouTube look better than Twitter. Well, when you think of uh, the way you guys are building things, you talk about the ethics, you talk about the humanity. I would say that what I've seen over the last couple of years has been extremely encouraging. YouTube has become a lot more human. We've gotten to know a lot of the people at YouTube. We, we have lots of friends over at YouTube. Uh, extremely grateful for that and extremely uh, aware of the, the privilege of getting to have those relationships. And we never did before. It was always the case that YouTube was a black box, that if we needed something, well, screw you, you don't get it. There's no one you can call. No one's going to listen. And so to now live in an era where it really seems like not just for us as a matter of our privilege, but you're fairly public now. Renee is extremely public. There are actual systems and structures in place to help creators, uh, one, when they have problems, but more to help them understand what those problems even mean. When this happens, here's why that might happen. Not just because uh, there's an endless sea of, of gurus out there, which that's only getting worse. I think as you guys become more public, as you talk more about how the system works, we're only going to see more and more people who just repackage whatever you say into their course. But even that is like a symptom of a, a good thing, that, that, that humanization. Yeah, I think that, you know, having been there through both parts of that story, I feel like that human element was always there. It just wasn't visible. Right. Part of that has been just the challenge of scale. Um, and the the growth that that YouTube has gone through. I, I remember when I got there, they had they were they set a goal around you know how much people were using YouTube, and when they set the goal, the the amount of usage it represented was more than the um, usage of the entire internet at the time they sent the goal. Cool. And so that kind of trajectory, I, I remember going to YouTube when it had, it was already over a billion monthly users and, and thinking I was joining a company that was like about the plateau because, you know, how a billion users, that's just nuts. And and um, I was amazed to see the growth accelerate um, in, in the first few years. Maybe the company was slow to... Uh, expand support and mm. and things like that um, that's fair um i think that's fair there were and there are risks of of commenting publicly about things and there oh, are people who whose job it is out there are to you know report on on companies and find stories to tell about you know that are worth clicking on mm -hmm. um and people love to read about the downfall of of powerful entities I, I think that the, the same reason that people will gravitate toward conspiracy theories it is attractive to think that someone out there when something bad happens to you there's an architect of that badness yeah somebody out there the thing that is bad that happened to you happened to you because somebody meant for that to happen to yeah. you it takes the responsibility off of your plate and onto someone else's you're not at fault it's not random chance you failed because someone wanted you to fail. You failed because the system let you down. It's it's an attractive idea. I get it. I really do. Uh, the more that, that I, I was going to say you, I guess we 
in terms of like educating the public, educating the creator community at large about how these systems work. So much of it is like, I, I think that when you when you give weight, when you give power to the conspiracy theories, you're 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 giving up power. I think yeah. for the for the creators, it's yeah. taking something away from them. And so these conversations that you or Renee are, are having in public now, uh, my, one of my new favorite things is watching you respond to people on Twitter who complain about one thing or another. And you'll say, well, I went into your channel and I think it's actually this. And it's not cruel. It's not like dunking on them. It's just like, here are the facts. Go do something with that. I love that. Ultimately, I I do. It's my job to make it such that if a creator produces great content and an audience wants to watch it, like our incentives are in line. The viewers, the creators and YouTube all want to make that happen. And so when it's not happening, I want the answer to be that, well, we tried to show it to the people who we thought would be interested in it and they just weren't interested in it. And so then I, I look at, you know, if, if I can find a bug in the system as a result of somebody pointing out something, um, I'd lo I love that. I, I would love to find an opportunity where we're not recommending something to someone. But when I've gone in and looked at the data, you know, 99% of the time I'm able to see, okay, well, for this video, look at your subscriptions feed interaction. There's no algorithm there other than reverse chronological order. The people signed up, they clicked the subscribe button. We're giving them what they asked for and they still didn't watch your video, what, what's the explanation there? Because it can't be the algorithm. Right. And then the question becomes, well, why didn't they watch? Or why did they abandon the video at, you know, a minute into it? I've certainly seen the conspiracy theory that uh, notifications aren't going out to subscribers or it's not appearing in people's subscription feeds. Uh, viewers are saying they didn't see this in the sub feed. Yeah, when, I, when I've heard those complaints, my first reaction is I say, hey, can you please have the person that's not receiving the notification submit official feedback through the app so that we can then go trace and see what happened to that user in their notifications. And, and we log every time we send a notification. And I've, I've personally, uh, I, I now am responsible for the notifications uh, product team at YouTube. But even before then, because I care about people getting notifications they want, I would personally like work with the notifications team to investigate these cases where people were saying they weren't getting it. And um, I've still yet to find an example that couldn't be explained by either one, um, they thought they were opted in to receive all notifications, but they were only opted in to receive personalized notifications, which means you don't get all of them, you just get some of them. Um, other times, maybe they weren't subscribed and we looked in the logs to see oh well did was there an unsubscribe oh there were actually a month ago it looks like you unsubscribed from this channel um Awkward. so so anyway i haven't found the bugs there but again if anybody's watching this and you're not getting a notification you've opted in for all oh the other thing that is quite common is uh people opt in for notifications but then they've turned off notifications on on their phone the offer still stands if anybody uh, isn't getting notifications. I I want nothing more than to find a bug and uh, fix it. Jumping back. Yeah. You were you said you were at Yahoo for 11 years. What happened? You just said, screw it, I'm done with this place? 
No, uh, the reason I left Yahoo, um, one, it had been a while. During that time, I considered uh, going to Netflix and working on recommendations. I I, I met with uh, the CEO of Netflix. They tried to recruit me. And at the time, I, I, de I decided not, this was right when they were getting into streaming, actually. I decided I was more excited about the fact that Yahoo had a lot of different types of recommendation problems because they had news and finance and sports and um, entertainment and whereas Netflix was just movies and TV shows. So a former coworker uh, had become CEO of uh, a company called Beats Music, which was part of Beats by Dre, where they were uh, creating a music service. And uh, he uh, thought I'd be a good fit for, uh, they had a VP role. The, the title, which I understand was, um, crafted by Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails, who was uh, on the, uh, he was the chief creative officer. Uh, the title was Head of Intuition and Data. And so, you know, they floated that idea out to me and I thought that would be pretty interesting. So uh, long story short, I left Yahoo to kind of get back into the music personalization. A former coworker from Yahoo had landed at YouTube um, working on recommendations and what year uh, was this this was in 2014 okay late 2013 and she, she saw that i was taking some time off from working and reached out and said oh you should come in for lunch so i went in for lunch and then she said oh you should come in for lunch meet my my boss i went in met her boss her boss said you should really stop coming in for lunch and you should like go through the interview process and uh, come work with us. So I did Wait, that. They said go through the interview process. Yeah. Like that there was no like, we like you. We think you're the right person. I was trying to, I was hoping it could work that way, but no, to get into Google. They made you jump through the hoops. They make you jump through the hoops. All right. So uh, part of those hoops was doing a presentation. Um, really? at, at the time they were testing in the product manager hoop cycle. Did they make you do an explainer video? No explainer video, but they said, come in and present for 30 minutes on any topic you want. So the topic I chose is why YouTube recommendations aren't very good and how they could be better. And uh, I think that helped me get the job. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just kind of pointed out all the things like, hey, why am I getting recommended all these Minecraft? I haven't even watched Minecraft channels. And at the time I was, uh, I noticed all the problems. I actually included that article about child murder in my uh in my presentation to like that's the same help, help youtube understand that yeah. hey it's like i know you can't just look at clicks and you came in what was your role when you started so my first role was uh the product lead on the home page and mm. so uh, and it was at that time just focused on the algorithm aspects not the design aspects which i've since taken uh as well um and it was uh actually between when I interviewed and started is when Susan Wojcicki became the head of YouTube. And um, around that time, there was a bit of a, a sort of a regime change, so to speak, where a lot of the people had, had been there for like five years or so and decided, okay, this is a time I'm gonna move on and do something else. And there was like an absence of management. Like I actually was reporting directly to Susan and there were like, I don't know, dozens of other product managers the same. And that's, you know, she she had better things to do than to 
be directly managing all those folks. So I kind of raised my hand and said, oh, you need someone to manage, I'll do that. So that's when I started working on a broader set of uh, search and discovery. Then after that, focus more on the discovery side. Okay. But and that's uh, been 10, almost 10 years, you said? Yeah, yep, yeah, 2014. Wow. How do you feel about the work that you've accomplished in that time? This is an extremely loaded question, I understand. I feel good about it. I feel like there's been lots of improvements at the same time. Like, you know, I, I still see lots of opportunities to make it better. And, uh, so, um, I still see the friction points. Um, and you know, what really motivates me is talking to viewers who get excited about content they've discovered or, um, you know, tell about their parents who are watching this, you know, content that I didn't even know existed on YouTube. Um, and so I still see opportunities for uh, making that easier, make it more relevant. I don't know. I, I still think there's work to do. Don't don't fire me, YouTube. Um, but I feel good about, you know, how many people we've been able to, uh, you know, satisfy and entertain. And employ. And employ. I'll die on this hill, if not for YouTube algorithms, so many of us don't have jobs. If you think that you just deserve those views and YouTube is the problem, great, go start a Vimeo channel. Let's see how, see how big you blow up then. I think uh, it's been great to see when people do kind of appreciate that the algorithm enables them to reach audiences that they wouldn't reach if it weren't for if it weren't for that, if people had to like manually go around and search for things. The three big things I want to talk about here. One, getting some some more personal history from you, humanizing things, which I think is important and, and very useful for, for those of us who are not within the walled garden of YouTube. Two, we're building a thing now. Like Nebula, which I've uh, I've said in the past, and I think we can agree, not a YouTube competitor. That's not what we're building. It's not what we're interested in. Uh, I've also said in the past that the the relationship between Nebula and YouTube is very friendly. Hopefully, your your presence here makes that uh, at least clear. There's no animosity yeah. uh, between us. Um, but we see ourselves as like we're trying to do a lot of what I think the spirit of the like YouTube original, uh, yeah, YouTube originals program was mm -hmm. and that program i know you can't comment on this but that program skewed very heavily towards let's go get mainstream celebrities and trick the world into thinking that they're doing things on youtube spent a lot of money on that yeah I, that's not how i characterize it no? i think there was a lot of attempts to take creators that were successful on youtube and build series around them you had like escape the night with joy graceffa um i think it was a mix of trying to help uh, fund creators to support production values that weren't necessarily um, affordable in the, in the default model, um, testing the premium model with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were also some things where we brought in more traditional, traditional media uh, folks. Yeah, I think turning, turning YouTube into TV was probably the the wrong direction to come at it from. But what we're trying to do is a similar approach of like, let's get a little bit more production value. Let's take these creators and, and try to elevate them. But with the focus on specifically, let's elevate these creators. What could they do 
with a little bit more resourcing? What could they make if they took a slightly different approach? And because we're more fully integrated, I think we have an opportunity to do some cool things there. But again, this isn't really a uh, uh, an us versus you guys thing. It's more of like, what we're doing is simply different. We have a much smaller audience size, of course. We have a much smaller set of creators, of course. Uh, we have a much smaller catalog of content. You guys probably have more videos uploaded per second than the entirety of our catalog. But the average quality of a person contributing to Nebula and the average quality of a video on Nebula will inherently be higher, not because you've done anything wrong, but because user-generated content and curated will always have that, that difference. You have um, a breadth that we cannot possibly hope to, to reach, nor do we want to, and you have a whole host of problems that that come along with that that you're equipped to solve in a way that we never would be. Um, we have a bit more average depth with the viewer and a bit more average depth with the creator. So the the challenges we face in building a recommendation system are going to be inherently different from your challenges. You have a sheer volume of data and a volume of knowledge about any of those users or their viewing habits that we never will. But the ways in which you're going to try to match them up, what I'm interested in here is some of those things are going to be similar between our system and your system. Uh, and not so much like tell me how to do this, although if you want to, I'm happy to, to, to listen. But more, I'm interested in how I'm interested in how you go about solving some of these problems. There's celebrity stuff like TMZ in traditional entertainment where you're going to see like this person did this thing or this happened. You've got like People Magazine, which is a bit more about behind the scenes of the entertainment industry characters. What I've always really attached to, what I've always been drawn to is the sort of like the business of show business, DVD commentary, listening to the the, mm -hmm. the crafts people talk about the craft of what they do. Here's why we made this. Here's why we shot this the way we did. Um, one of my favorite things like that, the the Fight Club director's commentary, uh, Brad Pitt making fun of David Pincher for underlighting every scene. Uh, moments like that. And you go back, you watch the movie again, you appreciate it differently. Uh, I want any of these conversations, what I want out of it, like if the audience enjoys it, great, good for them. Uh, this is for me, damn it. What I want is a better understanding of the thought process that goes into making these things. It will benefit me, of course. Like I'm, yeah. I'm taking notes. But uh, it's so interesting to me just as a viewer. When I'm watching something, recommendations have gotten really good. I've stopped using the subscription feed entirely. And I was like a ride or die subscription feed person. So when even I will make that switch over, what what is your thinking what goes into the machine of trying to find yeah. new things that I well, like? Well, let's let's start with Nebula. Like, I'm curious. Like, what made you decide that you needed a recommendation algorithm? People kept asking. Uh, we we certainly have a kind of audience, and there's a lot of overlap between those people. Uh, a lot of overlap. People who subscribe to Nebula, people who sign up and give us money, um, will often do it. That 60, 60 something percent of the time they'll come in using a specific creator's code. They came in because they heard about us from this creator and they want to support that creator. They signed up using that creator's code. We don't advertise anywhere else. The only place we put any marketing mm -hmm. dollars is paying the creators to talk about Nebula. So that stands to reason. And people who watch one of our creators, by and large, will watch more than one. I mean, if you wanted to just support one creator, I guess you could do that on Patreon. 
if you want to support this creator and get access to these other things, we're a much better value. And so we, we tend to pull in larger numbers per creator in that respect. What we don't do a good job of is showing somebody who came in for creator A that creators B, C, D, E, and F, who they also subscribe to on YouTube, are here. There's no way for them to know that unless they go looking or unless one of those videos just comes up in the latest videos rail. Uh, we aren't doing anything. We don't have a system to say, like, give us your YouTube subscription feed or give us, you know, a list of the channels you follow. We have no, like, oh, often we'll check out your YouTube and, oh, here's the creators you also follow, like, come over here. We sort of rely on the the viewers to to go find them, which isn't a great system. And we rely on, I, I guess if you watch enough of these creators, you'll hear from enough of them that they're on Nebula and you'll go and you'll fill that out. Lots of stuff gets missed. We hear all the time from people who are like, oh, I didn't realize this creator was on Nebula. And I see that and I think, like, how could you not? They're out there every month, like every other, literally every second video they're talking about Nebula. How did you miss this? But of course, of course people are going to miss that. They don't watch every video. You know as well as anybody that the audience, very few people in the audience watch every video from a creator. And many of those people probably drop off as soon as they get the, the scent that there's an ad read. So what can we do to solve for that? And how do we take the people who came in to watch, say, uh, Philosophy Tubes, The Prince, or people who came in to watch Jetlag? They, they may not have a ton of context for what else is even on here. How do we show them things that they'd like? Keep them around. Yeah, oftentimes how I start by approaching the recommendation problem is to think about how would I solve it as a human? Put the algorithm aside and think about, um, well, what would you like the recommendation system to do? What would, what would be a good recommendation? Let's talk to somebody. Let's just say I'm a, I'm a nebula, nebula user. How would you go? What, what kind of recommendations do you want to deliver to me? How would you solve that as like a concierge, so to speak? For me, like I often think about the recommendation system as, you know, we talked earlier about automating word of mouth. Take the things that humans do that that work okay for recommending things and enable them to work in, you know, with more people. Um, so, you know, you start by saying things like, oh, well, somebody watching jet lag, there's other channels that they would probably like to watch. And so that that takes me to the language of, of things that, oh, well, if you like jet lag, you'd probably like this other thing. And so that's one type of recommendation is, you know, item-based um, collaborative filtering, which uh, people who, who did this did that. And um, the nice thing about that kind of data and that kind of approach is that you don't need a lot of data per person because you're just learning from the aggregate behavior of everyone who watched jet lag and you know a brand new user can benefit from those kind of recommendations by just watching jet lag um, and seeing you know what people also watched services start with recommendations like if they don't necessarily have um, a lot of data they start on the aggregate side so on the very the very broad recommendation aggregate side would be things like popularity. Like, here's the most viewed channels. Then we're just in, inflating almost artificially the popularity of those channels. Yeah. Part of our ethos is we specifically don't want to do that. Yeah. We want to help the viewer find the things that weren't necessarily popular because we can assume 
that the least popular video on Nebula is probably still a good video. Mm -hmm. It just for one reason, especially because we're we import so much back catalog. There's a lot of the least popular videos are going to be older videos that were absolute, you know, million plus view bangers on YouTube that because Nebula existed later in life, people just didn't go back and watch the, the, those videos. So like we can't use popularity inherently in the same way. One thing that I might think about is maybe you could come up with something that's like content you might have missed of uh, content that you think people would be interested in in general, but, you know, doesn't have very many views. I uh, so one of my hobbies is a uh, a weekly music chart. Um, I think it was in 2015 that ranks the new release al alternative and indie music. And I make a weekly playlist that ranks that music. It's called the new alternative 40 chart. And one of the features that I added to my kind of like commentary that goes with the chart when I post it on Reddit and other places is I came up with this alternative chart to the alternative chart called um, underplayed. And so part of my chart involves looking at a bunch of blogs and uh, people who are talking about new releases. And then I also look at streaming data on YouTube and Spotify. And so this underplayed chart is highlighting the stuff that's being talked about a lot, but not being streamed. And so maybe there's some interesting nuggets in there hmm. that people haven't yet discovered, but maybe it's bad. Also, you said looking at streaming data. One thing we could do is YouTube video view counts for so much of our catalog. Those view counts are public. Mm -hmm. We could go scrape that and drop it into a database. Or, or use the official API. There's so you don't violate the TOS. Yeah. Uh, that's what I mean. Like we, we could go in. We can get that data. We can... Yeah. We can say for this set of videos, uh, I think in most cases we could just match make by uh, title. If the title matches and the channel name matches, mm -hmm. then good enough. Uh, and look at the view count data and like whatever else we can get out of that. Do you imagine that they're watching YouTube videos the same way they would listen to music? Since that's so much of the the history and the context of how you think about it, is it still... Do you think that's a similar use case? I think it's similar, but I also think there's definite differences around like repetition, for example. Um, with music, you know, you might want to, you might listen to the same song 10 times and love that. Whereas with, with videos, you know, if you've already watched a video, maybe you'll watch it a few times. But this is actually one of the areas where we have some of the biggest challenges because when we ask people what they don't like about their recommendations, one of the top things they say is that we continue to recommend videos that they've watched before. Mm -hmm. However, um, when we look at the data, we're actually recommending such videos less than people actually rewatch videos. And so um, we're not over recommending videos that people watched before. And I've gone and looked at this um, not just in aggregate, but like um, looked at like summarizing for, for users, rewatch X percent of the time. How does that compare to how often we recommend videos they've watched before? I rewatch videos all the time, but I don't think I've ever done it out of recommendations. It's because like I intentionally want to go in and see that video. 
Is that yeah? Normal? So we we see people doing it from recommendations really? at much higher rates than we um, recommend, and we we kind mm. of it's one of the things where we tested um, reducing recommendations of already watched videos, and if we completely remove them from recommendations, then people like leave YouTube and watch less. But if we include them. And so it's really about finding, well, which are the ones that they want to rewatch versus don't want to rewatch. Um, so that's an interesting challenge. But in music, it's... You always want to re-listen. Yeah, Who I wants to hear a song once? Yeah. I mean, the way we ingest that stuff is different. Yeah. Uh, I think the comparison between YouTube and music, I mean, as a as a person whose background is, is playing with music stuff, uh, I, I see your perspective on this as a person whose background is trying really hard to be a professional musician. I have a similar but slightly uh, askew perspective. I think of it as the way, the way that you make the thing is similar, the way that you ingest the thing is similar, but in that it's, a, it's an ephemeral experience. You sit down to watch a video. Uh, it's it, you can screenshot it, which you can't do with the song. You have the music video, but the 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 imagery. I would say largely in a YouTube video, the imagery is there to support the audio, which is why there's like the sort of podcastification effect of of a lot of. You know, it depends on the, the genre, but uh, it is it is certainly possible to take many YouTube videos, play them look at something else or do your dishes while you're listening to the video and you don't lose that much. If you were to just watch the video with no audio, you probably lose quite a bit. And so I think in that way, there's a, a connection between the, the viewing experience and the music listening experience. And I think that uh, more broadly, there is certainly a, a fashion element mm -hmm. where in music, rock music being popular or hip hop being popular or disco being popular. These things work in cycles and it's based on like popularity. There's a fashion element. It is, that is what is cool at that time. It, it's not that if the Beatles were to come out today, instead of back in the sixties, if the Beatles were to start making records now, those records would not be hits. Nobody would care. It's important because of that time, that place. Uh, and it worked because mm -hmm. of that. Uh, Similarly, I think YouTube videos, YouTube creators, there's a zeitgeist to it. Uh, how do you make something as a YouTube video and have it be evergreen? How do you have that be an experience that people want to keep coming back to? Yeah, I think um, you were talking about like people listening in the background or what, you know, if you took away the audio but kept the video, do you lose the experience? Um, I think it's important for creators to to actually put themselves in the shoes of the audience and have those experiences because on the homepage on mobile today, the default is to play the video without audio because like so far, what we've heard from people is they don't want the audio to be on by default when they open their phone. And maybe that'll change over time. There are apps that have audio on by default. Well, th there's a reason I would say for that. When you just open up the homepage and it starts playing whatever it's selected for you, there's sort of like a non-consensual element to that experience. Can you imagine if you turned on the television and it was muted by default, though? <laughs> uh, this, mm, 
I see what you mean. Yeah, we we follow the audience. So if the audience doesn't want it, then we're not going to do it. But we have seen other apps that do that, and people flock to them and use them. So um, maybe maybe the maybe people will change over time. Is it is, is there an expectation element? Like I I'm assuming that we're talking about another uh, video platform that does short form yeah. vertical video. Yeah. Um, how did how did people accept that? I think COVID helped. Yeah. When you're yeah, I got I got a whole thing about this. When you're stuck at home and there's no consequences to your phone just playing sound, there's yeah. no there's no other human beings at the restaurant to say, hey, turn that shit off. What the yeah. hell are you doing? Then you just do that. And when we're locked indoors and we do that for two years and we're let back out in the world, everyone at every restaurant is just having loud speakerphone FaceTime calls while sitting at the dinner table, uh, regardless of how the other people around them might feel about yeah. that. People watching videos, full volume, in public, like it's nothing. TikTok kind of ruined us. COVID kind of ruined us for that. Uh, but, but I think sitting at home watching a short form thing and you just sort of like mindlessly, endlessly scroll while suddenly the 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 ocean of content dried up. There were, there were fewer and fewer new cool things to watch because nobody wanted to release movies in theaters. Uh, when yeah. you couldn't release a movie in a theater, famously Disney got sued by Scarlett Johansson over this. Uh, it's like, why put a movie out in theaters when it's going to lose money when you do yeah. that? So let's hold all that stuff back. Meanwhile, us at home, we're just looking for shit to watch. And so it's like, uh-huh. And just like, let it play. Zero so I, I think we're seeing seeing it evolve in terms of how people decide what to watch. And I think originally YouTube just pulled a random frame as a thumbnail. And then there was a time where we create we in, allowed creators to upload a custom thumbnail. And I think it actually took more years than it should have for creators to really understand that their views were determined by how well they packaged the video, that it wasn't just about making a great video, that part of the job of being a creator was to market that video um, such that people clicked on it because that's what you need to get views. The great lie we're told in school is that you should never judge a book by its cover. The truth is, if that were the case, then we wouldn't have an entire industry of people whose job it is to design book covers. Right. And it's you don't have time to read every book to judge it, right? <laughs> Before you buy it. Yeah. <laughs> right? I, had a conversation, so you... I had a conversation with a creator recently about a problematic thumbnail where there was, I won't get into the specifics, but there was some offensive imagery. And his position was, no, no, if you watch the video, it's not offensive. In context, this makes sense. And I said, cool. No one's going to see the video until they see the thumbnail. Yeah. Like you don't have that context in the thumbnail. You might intellectually be able to justify this in the totality. Yeah. But you can't in the thumbnail and that's your problem. So we added custom thumbnails and I think that it took creators quite a while to, to invest in the value there that it was giving audiences in helping them decide. And then, you know, now we're in a world where on mobile, the thumbnail only shows for like half a second to a second while you're scrolling on the homepage. And then we found that people really liked being able to just like see what the video is about because, you know, there's a lot more information that can be in conveyed in video than a single frame of a thumbnail. Mm -hmm. And so, but I think we're kind of experienced the same thing where not a lot of creators 
understand that now the person's decision is based in large part on what they deliver in the in intro mm -hmm. and what they deliver in the intro when there's no sound. And how much time do you think most creators are looking at that through the eyes of the viewer trying to figure out, is this worth my time? And how long does that autoplay go? Five seconds, 10 seconds? No, it'll go. Oh, it'll just keep going? It'll play the whole video. Because we talk about packaging now internally. It, it used to be title and thumbnail was packaging. And now yeah. when we talk about packaging, it's title, thumbnail, first 30 seconds. Yeah. What are you doing? Like, what's your hook in that first 30 seconds that gets somebody to keep watching? Yeah. This is why packaging is more than, or it has to be important enough that it's not just part of your post-production process. Yeah. You need to design this into the video. Yeah. At some point, it maybe it ends up blending and being more of an on-ramp from the first impression to the end of the video, as opposed to well, you have your packaging and you have your content. It seems like this consumption experience involves the, the, the journey that you're taking someone from. Yeah, it's a totality you know, of a thing rather yeah. than like you write the book and then someone else designs the cover and right. then those things can sort of exist separately from one yeah. another. That's interesting. Yeah. When you look at, again, speaking in, in terms of recommendation engines, do you think that it's always going to work like this? Do you think that it's always going to be the case that um, we're going to need to care about the first 30 seconds? Do you think that's always going to be the case that we even need to care about thumbnails? If you're a professional video creator making things on YouTube, is it good to hire a full-time thumbnail artist or should your first hire in that team be somebody who's thinking more holistically about the packaging experience and then just farm out to thumbnail artists? Are we getting into like algorithm hacking stuff? I want to avoid that. But no, yeah. I don't I don't see it as algorithm hacking. I my story when people talk about the algorithm is to replace the word algorithm when they're talking with the word audience because the algorithm is aiming to serve the audience. The algorithm is mostly a conduit. And what you really should be focusing your attention on is what the audience cares about. So when you ask about like, you know, will it always be thumbnails or will it always be intros? Maybe there's other ways that we can help viewers decide to watch, but um, it is gonna be driven by what works for the audience. And so when talking to a particular creator about whether they should hire a thumbnail artist or focus more on like their intro, it's gonna depend on where their audience is falling off. Are they finding that they can get people to start watching and, and then they just abandon within 30 seconds? Or is it that, you know, people aren't even, you know, clicking? I think that the, the missing piece in, and I agree with you, the algorithm, replace the word algorithm with the word audience. The missing piece though, with that as like a, an analogy or as a, a framework of thinking is we're seeing the algorithm is, is a stand in for the audience based on how you're measuring the audience. People can fall into these, these sort of dark patterns of what people like isn't necessarily good for people. So writ large, we end up with, um, you know, hate speech floating to the top in ways that we wouldn't want it to. Uh, when you're measuring the the audience, the tools you use to measure will will inherently uh, inject some kind of bias into the process. Mm -hmm. From an ethics perspective, how do you see the how do you see your responsibility and the responsibility of the platform? And I don't. This is not uh, a gotcha question for YouTube. This is like how do we solve this for ourselves? How do you keep it 
from turning into an echo chamber? How do you keep it from, from letting the, the negative forces win? Well, there's a lot of aspects of responsibility ranging from child safety to misinformation. Oftentimes, it starts with the objective of what, it, what are you trying to do? And for us, it's about satisfied viewers is the, is the primary objective. Mm -hmm. And then responsibility comes in when we feel like satisfying viewers would not be responsible. Like the places where that is most acute is when, you know, I would say probably around like uh, misinformation or where somebody is presented with information that is just false or, or misleading. And so um, I think there's a lot more focus on responsibility when it comes to sensitive information that could impact somebody's livelihood. That's where you have the most responsibility. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's entertainment. Entertainment isn't as much about universal truth as it is about subjective you know, beauties in the eye of the beholder. Sure. Who's, you know, what is the most correct music is not a thing. What I want to do is help enable this, the signals about what people are talking about and what they're enjoying through streaming to reach other people. It comes back to that automating word of mouth thing of like helping people see what people are talking about. One debate that came up internally, how much do we care about watch time? Like, is our goal satisfaction or is the goal how much time people spend on the platform? The way I think about it is there's actually three different levels of kind of goals and, and things you optimize for. There's the ultimate objective, which for us is like, well, we want people to have a satisfying experience on YouTube so that they'll come back tomorrow and they'll come back a year from now because we've consistently delivered you know, things that satisfy them. So that Agreed. is the ultimate goal of the algorithm. Absolutely. But then there's like, okay, but it's very difficult to model how an individual recommendation will influence how you feel about the platform a year from now. And even though we have lots of data, it's, it's very, there's an attribution problem of knowing, well, which, which recommendation and which watch actually mattered. Mm. So there's a second level of things where our signals for that ultimate objective but that we feel strongly enough about them as being good indicators of that long-term goal that we're willing to rank things by those signals. Can you give examples? Yeah. So think about it as like, how would we know whether somebody enjoyed this video? Well, if they like, if they click the like button, that's probably a good, good predictor that, that it contributed to that long-term satisfying experience. And similarly, if they click the dislike button, it probably didn't. When I hit the like button on a video, is that a signal you use for me to find me more videos in the future? Or is it a signal that you use for the video to better match it to other users in the future or both? Both. Both? Yeah. Click through rate. You know, we've seen, you know, that is useful in knowing whether somebody was interested in the video. But years ago, that was the only thing YouTube was looking at. But we did see that, that how long somebody watched was also um, indicative of their level of satisfaction. But it was only one signal that by itself doesn't tell you the whole story. I'd hate watch lots of videos. Yeah, 
it's really about kind of identifying what are the things that users can do either by watching or by giving feedback that help us uh, understand which videos were better than others. The third level would be things that we more refer to as signals. And um, these are things where we don't necessarily know how important they are. And um, towards that longer term objective, but these are things that are useful for predicting whether somebody's going to watch or how long they're going to watch. Or like, did they subscribe to the channel? How much have they watched from that channel recently? How long has it been since they subscribed to the channel? That's interesting that you would look at how long since they subscribed. Because we found that just knowing that they're subscribed doesn't tell the whole story. If you subscribe to a channel eight years ago and haven't watched anything in the past year, that tells us something different than if you just subscribed yesterday. Is it looking at time since last watch or is yeah. it looking at um, whether or not you've watched the most recent video? Yes. Because there's plenty of channels that put out a video, like Salmonella just put out a, a video for the first time in a year. Yeah. And it's day two and it's like two and a half million views already. Yeah. Blowing up. So somebody somewhere is getting notifications on that. So it can't just be that people subscribed five years ago, but they haven't watched anything in the last year. So it gets yeah. pulled down. And that's why there's like literally hundreds of these different things that are considered. And then, yeah, I think a lot of people when they get nervous about an algorithm, about the algorithm is that they're worried that, you know, just because one signal says something doesn't mean that 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 they're no longer interested or they, they are really interested in something. Right. Like the the myth, the the urban legend that if you if you make videos every two weeks, but then you skip a video, yeah. your algorithm ranking is gonna drop. Yeah. I, no. I haven't seen any evidence yeah. of that. I mean, if the system is so brittle that it's dependent on something like that, then it's not going to be, you know, a good system. And so there's multiple angles on understanding the viewer's interests. Um, and so we have lots of different paths that videos can spread. So like maybe there's no user who's watched that channel in the past month, but there are people that have signed up for every notification, like you said, and those are going to get delivered. And if that video is good, then that's going to start you know, it's going to start appearing in people's watch histories. And there's other paths aside from like your personal relationship with the channel that can lead you to get recommended something. Like if people are watching that video and they've watched other videos that you've watched is another path that it's not, it's not, it, it's that collaborative filtering. People who watch this also watch that doesn't need to have a subscription associated with it or it doesn't need your personal history with that channel because it can cut across right. channels. How much is, is an individual creator or creators in aggregate, how much are they factored into this? Again, not a gotcha question. I'm, I'm trying to understand. What do you for, mean how much are individual like, creators? One of the responsibilities we have uh -huh. because we are a creator-owned platform, we have to make sure that anything we do, we are, like you get this too. I know you do. But when, if I'm going to get feedback from a creator of, I feel like the algorithm is suppressing me, yeah. they can come straight into my DMs or call yeah. me. And that's a personal relationship where I have to explain and defend any decision I make. Yeah, um, You guys certainly get shit about this, deservedly or not. Um, 
but for me, deservedly or not, it's going to be a more personal thing. So I have to think really hard. The team has to think really hard about any decisions we make about algorithmic ranking or placement on our homepage or how users are using the thing. We have to think about what the creator's experience is going to be like on the other side of that. How much of that is a factor for you? The way that we make it work is that we focus on fairness and merit and objectivity. And we really aim to not kind of put our fingers on the scale of the algorithm to kind of steer it in a particular direction other than towards what makes the viewers more satisfied. And by by we have a you know set of principles at YouTube and the first principle is fans first. And while creators are the lifeblood of YouTube and we couldn't be anywhere without creators, we do in our recommendation system say that we are not, we don't have creator objectives in our recommendation system. Like we're not trying to get creators to upload more often. We're not trying to like serve one creator segment over another. It's creator agnostic. And it's like, it's intended to be, give the viewers what they want. And by doing that, you create the most opportunities for creators and those creators compete fairly for those opportunities. And so we're focusing on the viewers. And if it's better for viewers, then we'll do it. And um, so, you know, we will look at when we make a change at the impact on creators. So we could see like, oh, this is by adding this additional signal of the algorithm, we see that, you know, some channels get more engagement, some channels get less. We, when we look at that, we look at it from the lens of, hey, let's make sure there's not a bug here where, um, you know, we integrated something incorrectly that's like, now all of a sudden we don't recommend any music on the platform. Like right. that would be what we'd want to know. Um, but, you know, like, like part of my job, uh, one of the challenges I have is there are, in addition to like the core recommendations team, there are teams that are focused on ensuring that we do a good job of recommending live content and content that's got shopping uh, capabilities in it and shorts and, you know, all different music and things like that. And, you know, by nature, each of these vertical groups, for example, want obviously to get the most uh, attention on their area. But, but if we have an algorithm change that like reduces shopping viewership on, on videos that, that people can shop through, our answer is like, well, let's, why do we make this change? We made this change because, because this data here shows that it's better for viewers. And if that means they're shopping less, then as long as we are, what we would look for is to say, are we appropriately recognizing the value that viewers get from shopping content to make sure that that fairness is still there and we haven't made things unfair. But if we have the confidence it's better for viewers, then we say our job is not to like steer people to shopping. It's to steer people towards what's going to bring viewers back tomorrow. And so if your traffic's going down when we made it better for viewers, it means we had a bug. And unfortunately, this you were benefiting from that and we fixed the glitch. Whenever we insert something into the system, we um, we take the humble posture of like, we could be wrong about this. And so we want to have a way 
for the data to tell us when we've gone too far or when we've been wrong about a hypothesis. And so finding a way to, you know, set up a way to measure it such that you would know if you were overdoing it. Um, and so um, I would be trying to encode um, the objective that you have in some sort of data that you could say, okay, well, we believe in, in this, here's how we measure it. And then as long as the data tells us this, we'll know we're operating in the right place. And that, you know, at some point you ha have to make a, you might have to make a judgment and say, well, if people start unsubscribing from Nebula, then maybe that's a, a signal that we've done the wrong thing. Um, you know, figure out what your signals are. Yeah. I would argue that on that front, like we don't have a recommendation system really of any kind right now. So uh, any any movement from zero is a movement in a positive direction. So whether we go down a, a path of full fairness or a path of inherently trying to elevate certain voices within that system, um, it's going to be hard to know which one is better in a vacuum unless I guess we did both and A-B test it. But it's not I don't think that we can measure by who do we lose along the way. I think a lot about how there is, especially on YouTube, a type of failure that comes disguised as success mm -hmm. where you see the numbers going up and you think I am succeeding. And what you miss is the delta between this and then the numbers going up way more, way faster. Mm -hmm. This would have been success. You only succeeded this much. Therefore, you're a failure. Um, it'll be really hard for us to measure or understand. And also, like, is the measurement for us maximum number of viewers? maximum hours of watch time? Or is the measurement of success for us being a place where certain types of creators feel comfortable and they'll bring their audience and they'll respect and appreciate that in a different way? Being a niche-ish sort of platform, um, the metrics by which we have to measure ourselves are a little bit different. Yeah. And that's uh, it's tricky to account for, but I think the same sort of systems are in play. And I want to call out uh, at, the, at the risk, discussing this, I think, carries a risk of making it seem like I am taking a position that what you've done is incorrect. I actually think that when I've seen these questions come up, I think that YouTube's response to these questions have been very thoughtful and respectful. So at no point here is this a gotcha mm -hmm. question, not, mm -hmm. not trying to, to play that. Uh, but I do think that, that inherently, we might be held to a different level of accountability here because we're curated or, or does the curation bias out of it a little bit? I don't know. In some respects, I would say that the curation, like, to the extent that you take a more active role in deciding what is good, um, then your responsibility increases to do the right thing. Yeah, so I mean, it comes back to my original point about when you're designing your recommendation system, start with how would a human solve this? And so same question here. You have people manually recommending things today, curating them. How are they ensuring that they're maintaining a diversity of of creators there it's the same problem it's just mm. you're automating it um yeah. and scaling it um which can make it easier because then you can you know define the rules and they'll automatically go if you can but the hard part of the problem i think is deciding what is right yeah. And this is why we're doing our stuff openly. And again, that's not a criticism of you guys, although I think we might capitalize on that a little bit, whether we want to or not. People saying like, oh, they're doing it this way. I'm not going to shy away from that perception. 
But the reason we're doing it openly is because we recognize that we have to do that for the creators. And we're in a, a strange position relative to YouTube because for us, the, the sentence we put up on the whiteboard, we make money when blank. And for us, the blank is filled in, we make money when creators make money. When we make money on sponsorships, it's because somebody came in and paid the creator. When we make money from Nebula subscriptions, it's because the audience came in to see that creator. You take away the creators, we don't make money anymore. So anything we do has to be in service of the, the benefiting the creators. The, even with 670 whatever thousand paying Nebula subscribers, our customer is still the creator. They're not the vendor. They're not our supplier. That is still our customer. And so when we think about we're building this system, we have to be accountable to the customer for here's how that system works and here's why your video is being floated up or here's why your friend's video did so well and yours didn't. This is not a problem you're unfamiliar with, but for us, those relationships are a lot more personal and you are more accountable to the end viewer than you are to the creator. We also have the advertiser and a lot of people will mm -hmm. make assumptions about, well, since the advertiser is paying, then everything we do follows in serving them. But we've made decisions in how we set up, how we work, where we don't consider that at all. Like our, you know, we don't, I have no metrics related to revenue from advertisers. I, um, there's a separate team that works on advertising and, um, you know, it's, it's, we've made decisions about things like whether videos monetized or not should not influence, you know, whether it's recommended more or less. Because it's better for the user's experience. Right. And so we've, in my space, elevated viewers to the top, even though the overwhelming majority of viewers do not pay us and we don't make money from viewers directly. Mm. But we we see viewers as if we don't have viewers, we don't have advertisers. If we don't have viewers, we don't have creators. But you could also say the same thing in other directions. We, we don't have advertisers, we can't pay creators. Right. We don't have creators, we can't attract viewers. So we have lots of different directions. And, and I think, you know, our advertising group is focused on serving advertisers. We have, you know, I'm part of a, a viewer centric group. And then, um, you know, we have folks that are focused more so on creators than viewers as their primary responsibility. But I, I think, you know, you can't ignore, you can't go all in on one because if, because there are often tensions and what works well in the short term oh, yeah, for an advertiser might not what work well for a viewer or for a creator. And what works well for a creator, I think one example in the history of recommendations at YouTube is that on the on the watch page um, early, there were um, the first four slots um, were dedicated to the, the channel that you were watching. So you could argue that's a creator positive feature. It's like you're watching this channel. Well, here's a question. How much should the the creator own the watch experience? If their page is their page, then yeah. how much do you get to put other stuff on their page? Right. And I strongly believe that the fact that, and, and the data shows that when we, specifically when we unconstrained those top four spots to be from any channel, not just the channel you're watching, 
viewers watched more and were happier and they found more videos that they enjoyed, which is better for creators. You know, one way to think about it is if by the creator um, participating in a system where other videos can be marketed on their, while people are watching theirs, they also get access to other creators' video pages. And so it's it becomes sort of a like, well, we all, um, you know, and and in that system, you're you're doing what's best for the viewer, which also I think ultimately drives more discovery of creators. Um, that that makes the pie bigger for for all the creators. There's opportunities to like look at the big ecosystem picture, which may involve creators giving up some control for a, a greater benefit. And that's part of the job of the platform to recognize when a better outcome than individual self-interest might might lead to. Yeah, and so much of where I think historically there's tension between creators and the platform with YouTube is um, just opacity, which I feel mm -hmm. like that's being solved in a bunch of different ways right now, including you being here. So thank you for that. Um, but just like there's a better conversation happening around how all of these these moving pieces move. But there's also like the dynamics and the economics of play at your scale versus our scale are just very different. Yeah, You guys are more, um, if we think in terms of retail, you're more like, I was going to say a mall, probably more like Walmart, where you you are this like huge monolithic entity with many, many, many different suppliers, many different customers, and you're seen in a certain way, and you're seen as kind of a one-stop shop. People who shop there, they go there, they get all the things they need, and then they go home. But we are much more like, um, like a boutique shop. Mm -hmm. we're, we're a single store. You come in because you like this kind of thing. And we don't need to build relationships with different suppliers to guarantee that you know, for this much money, you get featured on the end cap of an aisle, or we're going to place the magazines next to the checkout stand because we know that human behavior means that you're more likely to buy the magazine there or buy candy there. We don't, we don't really sell junk food in that way. The way we engage with our suppliers in this analogy, the creators who are putting the products on the shelves and the customers who come into the shop is inherently different. And I'm wondering so we can see the ways in which a recommendation system, think about how you'd recommend to your friends. I think that the other side of that is how would you recommend to your friends who are in a smaller group with more heavy overlap and in interests versus a group of friends that includes billions of people? Mm -hmm. The way you would answer that question might be different over here than over here. And what does that look like? Well, I think the strengths of scale is that that you can connect with more people and find more um you can you can potentially go deeper um you can get to critical mass on more things if i were working on recommendations on nebula i think the thing that would be a struggle would be not having enough data to understand um what did satisfy people and um that's something that, you know, with more people, that becomes an easier problem. It's almost like a Netflix versus like a local video store's staff making recommendations. 
Yeah. Well, even Netflix versus YouTube, Netflix feels a lot more, you know, like we know reading their papers that they've spent a lot of time like human labeling. I think their catalog is only on the order of tens of thousands. Mm -hmm. And so they can afford to like go through and, um, you know, label each thing with, um, you know, human friendly, you know, descriptors and things like that, that, that they can incorporate into their either their algorithm or the way that they present content. So um, a smaller catalog, you can, uh, assuming that you can get enough people to justify that that work on each piece of content, if you get enough people to watch it to justify that work, um, you can do that. Um, that's all just metadata at that point. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, you when you have a smaller catalog, the stakes are higher for each, like for a series versus, you know, a two minute video, right? Like mm. people, when they go on a service and they're deciding what they're going to try to commit to for like the next 10 hours of watching, mm -hmm. they're going to want pr probably different information, spend different amount of time thinking about it rather than um, if they're just going to commit two minutes. One question is like, you know, I see Nebula has some shows that have been successful. Netflix is very show centric. YouTube hasn't historically been show centric. We have some shows and series. Are shows by nature a better way of consuming media? Obviously, they're not going to ever be the only way, but um, this is one part of our discovery system that people sometimes will criticize is like how easy we make it to look at the next episode of something. Mm -hmm. um, we and, hear about this too. Yeah. And in part, it's interesting sometimes going back to where creators and viewers don't necessarily see things the same way. Sometimes a creator will produce content with a strong intention of it being watched in series order. Yeah. And then the viewer may decide, oh, well, you know, the content, it doesn't matter. Like you take like Saturday Night Live skits. Mm -hmm. when, yeah. when Saturday Night Live uploads content, they put episode numbers and stuff like that. But Nobody it's cares. like, yeah. So um, in those cases, if you stick to the strict structure or how the creator might want to package it, it, and it comes back to that thing that I was saying too, is like we always want to set up a way to know when we're wrong. I think that's um, that includes to know when the creator was wrong about um, how mm. it was best to be consumed. The show versus channel thing, like the, it's such a blurry line. When I look at like the Streamy Awards, they have like show of the year, but all the other awards are about individuals. Yeah. They're not about the work. Yeah. And I think that's kind of telling of how we see ourselves in this industry and how the audience sees us. Each creator is just a little content factory. Keep making me get back into the content minds and make me more content. Get me more videos I can watch. There's not a sense of appreciation for somebody put a lot of time into this one video and it should stand alone as a, as a singular piece of art. Yeah. Where's really the video that. of the year? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Or best documentary or when you look at like the Oscars or the Tonys or, or the Grammys or whatever, it's all built around the work and the people who made the work with the streamy awards in our industry. I don't think it's an award show problem, although that's a, where it's most apparent. Um, it's a celebration of individuals who happen to also make things. It's personality driven. Hmm. And maybe there's an element of we do a lot 
with the platforms to to drive people to personalities rather than the actual work. Not saying that's you're doing something wrong, but mm -hmm. like maybe that's just a, an inherent part of the system. Mm -hmm. And fundamentally for us, it's always a question of like, that might be a part of the system. Is that a good thing? And if it's not, should we intentionally do something to counteract it? And it's harder to answer that. So how do you, you, you brought up the Walmart and boutique shop. There's quite, quite a narrative out there about how Walmart put boutique shops out of business. Hmm. How do you think about positioning yourself as a boutique shop in a Walmart world? Here's where I would lean into mall is a better analogy. Malls are all malls are going out of business. Yeah, <laughs> this is why out. you like the analogy. <laughs> no, no, I like the analogy because uh, Apple has a standalone store on Fifth Avenue, and it's the most valuable retail space on the planet. They also have a presence in various malls, and the way I see it is uh, a, a given creator should be in your mall. We don't want to take them away from your mall. Uh, we we also think that they should be in TikTok's mall. In our world, it's not about taking those stores out of the various malls. It's about giving them a place that is theirs. It is about creating our own thing, our own standalone thing that we own. We have full control over the experience because in doing so, we build a better relationship with the customer, the end customer, the creator's end customer, the viewer. Um, and we build a, a better relationship to the point where we can understand what they want or what they don't want within the systems over here. This should be complementary to, not a replacement for. So I don't think of it uh, in the boutique versus Walmart example. Um, yeah, where that analogy falters is it's not one or the other. I think both of these things working together is what makes it work. We might be over here doing our thing, but we're also over here and we're working with you and we're learning things because the algorithm is bringing us this kind of viewer and we can see what's popular, what's not. We can take all of that information over here and use it for our own direct benefit in other ways. I think the power of the ecosystem is if there is enough information, as you say, working with large data sets better, uh, if we have all of the information from over here at the mall, Walmart, whatever you want to call it, um, if we have all of that, we can apply it to everything else we do. It doesn't have to be competitive inherently. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're always going to be competing for dollars. You're going to be competing for watch time at the very least. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't know. I don't think a creator is going to win by picking one basket and putting all of their eggs in that basket. I certainly find it more enjoyable to work on recommendations whenever there are other players out there that are innovating in addition to what we're doing because uh, makes the job more interesting, keeps us uh, on our toes. And uh, so... Yeah, I, I've long been, uh, as one example, I've long been proposing, I actually put something in my presentation to kind of bring it back to uh, getting the job at YouTube. I've been a believer in discovering content through watching video, mm -hmm. not through like browsing thumbnails. In my presentation, I hacked up in Keynote a, uh, a consumption first browse experience that you know, I would say TikTok also did. We do have limited resources and what we can try and what I can convince leadership to invest in. And, and so it's good to have others out there uh, trying different things, proving them out or not. Or I'm eager to see like what Nebula does with recommendations to see maybe there's some, something you're going to figure out that 
that we didn't, and uh, we're going to steal the idea. I just, I just went I, on the record. Uh, well, again, we're <laughs> we're doing the, we're documenting everything we do. If there's an idea in there worth stealing, steal. Yeah. I would be thrilled. I would be thrilled if you stole an idea from us. That would be very um, validating. Yeah, we're well, certainly I've... stealing plenty of ideas from you. Yeah, we, one of our bigger issues uh, in design is that we are locked into a YouTube way of doing things. Right now, we keep getting complaints that we don't support autoplay. We do. It's just that we use the native player autoplay iconography, ah. which is the infinity symbol. We don't do what you guys did. And I've gone back and forth with our product team about like, just do what YouTube did. Yeah. I'm telling you, just do what YouTube did because that's what the audience is going to expect. Yeah. I don't love that we don't get to work in a vacuum, but we don't get to work in a vacuum. Yeah. We're, just, we're always going to be compared to you guys. We're always going to be... I don't even say like a little brother. We're like a a weird distant cousin that you you are nice to at, at family events. But there there is like an element of YouTube casts a big shadow. And the ways in which creators will succeed will be largely dependent on how well they understand that shadow and how well they understand when and how to step into the light mm-hmm. versus trying to remove the shadow entirely. You can't. It's always going to be there. Well, sometimes you need a little bit of shade because, you know, it's hot out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a good place to end this. Uh, Todd, here's the thing about this episode. We're talking about things that are really big and affect billions of people. I don't normally get to talk to people on this show about things that big. Uh, and so I just want to acknowledge that while this might be the least funny episode of this show, uh, there's also just a ton of information in here. Uh, and I'm I'm really grateful to you and to the uh, the YouTube PR team for <laughs> letting us do this. Yeah, it's been enjoyable and I'll try to bring more jokes to the next episode. <laughs> One thing I want to call out now that I've said that, I don't want anybody to think I was not given a list of like pre-approved topics. There was no filtering or control. They don't get like final cut. They didn't even ask to see this before it goes out. So there's no like, weirdness in any of that so seriously thank you for doing this this is i I think uh i certainly got a lot out of it i hope our product team gets a lot out of it uh but i also hope that the the creators out there who are thinking about how they're making things within systems and structures i hope that there's there's some food for thought in the way those systems and structures are are designed and built and i i hope that um if this is your first time you know learning about the people behind the algorithms at YouTube that you appreciate that there's people behind those algorithms and that they have um, strong values that are aligned with yours and want to help you connect with your audiences. And that's really what makes it all worthwhile. I would say the the greatest um, era of joy for me working within YouTube has been these last couple of years where I've gotten to know people who work there, understanding the thought process. And I don't, again, there's a, an element of privilege to that, but also like there's a better system for partner management now. And there's just more attention, I think, given to creators today than there was five years ago. And I think that's really great. Yeah. More I, of that, please. Yeah. We learn a lot in by listening. I would much rather have these conversations with, with you and creators than to just see them happening publicly in ways that... uh it's always just about what's wrong, but yeah. we get to hear also what's right. I think more right than wrong. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are, you're not, you're not the evil empire. We're not. I think we know who the evil empire is. It's not you guys. 
save that for the next episode. Yeah, well, I'm not going to say it here. I don't want to get you in trouble. Uh, Todd, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Hitsman. I guess it's now X. Um, I think it's still pronounced Twitter. Yeah. Um, that's probably where you'll see me the most. Creator Insider on YouTube. Check mm-hmm. out. There's tons of videos we've made there to try to demystify how YouTube works. Yeah, that's where I'll be. I will see you there. All right. Thank you, Todd. 